0: Chapter 4 Of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter 4 Naturally I was suspicious of all about me, and became more so each day, but not until about a month later that I refused to recognize my relatives. While I was at Grace Hospital, My father and eldest brother called almost every day to see me, and though I said little, I still accepted them in their proper characters. I remember well a conversation one morning with my father. The words I uttered were few, but full of meaning. Shortly before this time my death had been momentarily expected. I still believed that I was surely about to die as a result of my injuries, and I wished in some way to let my father know that despite my apparently ignominious end, I appreciated all that he had done for me during my life. Few men, I believe, ever had a more painful time in expressing their feelings than I had on that occasion. I had but little control over my mind, and my power of speech was impaired. My father sat beside my bed. Looking up at him, I said, You have been a good father to me. "'I have always tried to be,' was his characteristic reply. After the broken bones had been set, and the full effects of the severe shock I had sustained had worn off, I began to gain strength. About the third week I was able to sit up and was occasionally taken out of doors, but each day, and especially during the hours of the night, my delusions increased in force and variety.' The world was fast becoming to me a stage on which every human being within the range of my senses seemed to be playing a part, and that a part which would lead not only to my destruction, for which I cared little, but also to the ruin of all with whom I had ever come in contact. In the month of July several thunderstorms occurred. To me the thunder was stage thunder, the lightning man-made and the accompanying rain due to some clever contrivance of my persecutors. There was a chapel connected with the hospital, or at least a room where religious services were held every Sunday. To me the hymns were funeral dirges, and the mumbled prayers, faintly audible, were in behalf of every sufferer in the world but one. It was my eldest brother who looked after my care and interests during my entire illness, For the end of July he informed me that I was to be taken home again. I must have given him an incredulous look, for he said, Don't you think we can take you home? Well, we can, and will. Believing myself in the hands of the police, I did not see how that was possible, nor did I have any desire to return. That a man who had disgraced his family should again enter his old home and expect his relatives to treat him as though nothing were changed, was a thought against which my soul rebelled and when the day came for my return i fought my brother and the doctor feebly as they lifted me from the bed but i soon submitted was placed in a carriage and driven to the house i had left a month earlier for a few hours my mind was calmer than it had been but my new-found ease was soon dispelled by the appearance of a nurse one of several who had attended me at the hospital though at home and surrounded by relatives, I jumped to the conclusion that I was still under police surveillance. At my request, my brother had promised not to engage any nurse who had been in attendance at the hospital. The difficulty of procuring any other led him to disregard my request, which at the time he held simply as a whim. But he did not disregard it entirely, for the nurse selected had merely acted as a substitute on one occasion— and then for only about an hour. That was long enough, though, for my memory to record her image. Finding myself still under surveillance, I soon jumped to a second conclusion, namely, that this was no brother of mine at all. He instantly appeared in the light of a sinister double, acting as a detective. After that I refused absolutely to speak to him again, and this repudiation I extended to all other relatives, friends, and acquaintances. If the man I had accepted as my brother was spurious, so was everybody. That was my deduction. For more than two years I was without relatives or friends, in fact, without a world, except that one created by my own mind from the chaos that reigned within it. While I was at Grace Hospital, it was my sense of hearing which was the most disturbed, but soon after I was placed in my room at home, all of my senses became perverted. I still hear the false voices, which were doubly false, for truth no longer existed. The tricks played upon me by my senses of taste, touch, smell, and sight were the source of great mental anguish. None of my food had its usual flavor. This soon led to the common delusion that some of it contained poison, not deadly poison for I knew that my enemies hated me too much to allow me the boon of death, but poison sufficient to aggravate my discomfort. At breakfast I had cantaloupe, liberally sprinkled with salt. The salt seemed to pucker my mouth, and I believed it to be powdered alum. Usually, with my supper, sliced peaches were served. Though there was sugar on the peaches, salt would have done as well. Salt sugar, and powdered alum had become the same to me. Familiar materials had acquired a different feel. In the dark the bed-sheets at times seemed like silk. As I had not been born with a golden spoon in my mouth, or other accessories of a useless luxury, I believed the detectives had provided these silken sheets for some hostile purpose of their own. What that purpose was I could not divine, and my very inability to arrive at a satisfactory conclusion stimulated my brain to the assembling of disturbing thoughts in an almost endless train. Imaginary breezes struck my face, gentle but not welcome, most of them from parts of the room where currents of air could not possibly originate. They seemed to come from cracks in the walls and ceiling, and annoyed me exceedingly i thought them in some way related to that ancient method of torture by which water is allowed to strike the victim's forehead a drop at a time until death releases him for a while my sense of smell added to my troubles the odour of burning human flesh and other pestilential fumes seemed to assail me my sense of sight was subjected to many weird and uncanny effects phantasmagoric visions made their visitations throughout the night for a time with such regularity that i used to await their coming with a certain restrained curiosity i was not entirely unaware that something was ailing with my mind yet these illusions of sight i took for the work of detectives who sat up nights racking their brains in order to rack and utterly wreck my own with a cruel and unfair third degree. Handwriting on the wall has ever struck terror to the hearts of even sane men. I remember as one of my most unpleasant experiences that I began to see handwriting on the sheets of my bed staring me in the face, and not me alone, but also the spurious relatives who often stood or sat near me. On each fresh sheet placed over me, i would soon begin to see words sentences and signatures all in my own handwriting yet i could not decipher any of the words and this fact dismayed me for i firmly believed that those who stood about could read them all and found them to be incriminating evidence i imagined that these vision-like effects with few exceptions were produced by a magic lantern controlled by some of my myriad persecutors The lantern was rather a cinematographic contrivance. Moving pictures, often brilliantly colored, were thrown on the ceiling of my room, and sometimes on the sheets of my bed. Human bodies, dismembered and gory, were one of the most common of these. All this may have been due to the fact that, as a boy, I had fed my imagination on the sensational news of the day, as presented in the public press. Despite the heavy penalty which I now paid for thus loading my mind, I believe this unwise indulgence gave a breath and variety to my peculiar psychological experience which it otherwise would have lacked, for with an insane ingenuity I managed to connect myself with almost every crime of importance of which I had ever read. Dismembered human bodies were not alone my bedfellows at this time. I remember one vision of vivid beauty. Swarms of butterflies and large and gorgeous moths appeared on the sheets. I wish that the usually unkind operator would continue to show these pretty creatures. Another pleasing vision appeared about twilight, several days in succession. I can trace it directly to impressions gained in early childhood. The quaint pictures by Kate Greenaway— Little children, in attractive dress, playing in old-fashioned gardens, would float through space just outside my windows. The pictures were always accompanied by the gleeful shouts of real children in the neighborhood, who, before being sent to bed by watchful parents, devoted the last hour of the day to play. It doubtless was their shouts that stirred my memories of childhood and brought forth these pictures. In my chamber of intermittent horrors and momentary delights, uncanny occurrences were frequent. I believed there was someone who at fall of night secreted himself under my bed. That in itself was not peculiar, as sane persons at one time or another are troubled by that same notion. But my bedfellow, under the bed, was a detective, and he spent most of his time during the night pressing pieces of ice against my injured heels, to precipitate, as I thought, my overdue confession. The piece of ice in the pitcher of water which usually stood on the table sometimes clinked against the pitcher's side as its center of gravity shifted through melting. It was many days before I reasoned out the cause of this sound, and until I did, I supposed it was produced by some mechanical device resorted to by the detective's For a purpose. Thus the most trifling occurrence assumed for me vast significance. Chapter four.